Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Cameron, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast. Of course, Alan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great fun. We're recording audio and video. You're in Sydney, I assume, in the office. I'm uh, remote in Melbourne today. But it's great just to have a chat and talk ETFs, talk about the marketplace, as we'll discover in this conversation. And as a lot of our listeners know, the ETF marketplace is booming in every sense of it. Sure, year to year, we might have some fluctuations here or there. But over the long poll, it's really the probably most important part of the financial or investment ecosystem, at least as I see it. Given that this is your first time on the show, I would love to learn a little bit more about you and how you got started in this industry and ended up at BetaShares. Okay, great. Well, how long have you got? So I, I guess my first interest in, in in finance and in business probably came when I was uh, in my childhood years in, in the 80s and I, I grew up in Perth. And uh, guys like Alan Bond and, and Laurie Connell were you know, somewhat sort of larger than life in the West, shall we say. And I remember, you know, hearing about the term merchant banker um, with reference to Laurie Connell. And I sort of asked my dad as a kid um, how I could become a merchant banker. I thought it sounded pretty cool. He tried to, to sort of point me in the direction of engineering, which actually ended up studying. I sort of was interested in engineering as well. But a couple of years into uni doing engineering, one of my friends showed me a book on finance book on, on options, derivatives. Uh, and futures and and honestly it was it was one of those sort of moments when it just crystallizes what you want to do and I, I dropped engineering I started quant finance and you know a couple of degrees later I, I came out and I found myself a job on the trading floor the equity derivatives trading floor in Macquarie Bank which is sort of the dream job that's exactly what I wanted and sort of went from there that was that was before the GFC very exciting times a lot of growth a lot of complexity in that part of the market you know very interesting and saw the highs and lows of that period. That was certainly very exciting. Yeah. And then probably, you know, since then, I, I obviously seen, watched from afar, beta shares growth and the growth of the ETF industry, which obviously was quite nascent when I'd started my career. Uh, and a number of my colleagues had moved, in fact, from Macquarie to beta shares. And I think what's really interesting about the ETF industry is that versus some of the products that I started my career, and you've actually got what's relatively simple in terms of an, an investment product there's enough complexity in markets as there, as there are, right? So, you know, something which investors are, are drawn to the advantages of the product, something with this growth, that's a really good spot in terms of professional 
development and ability to to sort of play a, a role in in people's lives and building wealth. So hence uh, my move across to BetaShares about three years ago. I'm curious, just to circle back to something, do you remember what the book was on options trading and all that? Do you remember? Yeah, it was the Hull textbook, which... The Hull textbook, I was going to say. It, it's a classic, right? Like, yeah, and I actually tutored derivatives at, at uni when I did postgrad. And I actually got the answer booklet to that, which was, uh, I guess, would have been gold while I was doing my undergrad. But, but yeah, that, that was what really sort of lit a fire in my passion there, I think. Because that's the book for anyone that's listening or watching and is interested in studying the CFA. The CFA Level 2 curriculum deals with a lot of derivatives and and pricing of um, derivatives. And it's probably the most confusing part of the entire curriculum, at least from my opinion. But the whole textbook, if they just handed that to people, they'd be three times better off. So if you are that way inclined, like Cameron is, go and check that out. I mean, there's a lot we could could talk about. Do you invest in in ETFs personally? Yes, I do. When I started out investing, I mean, this is a long time ago when I was a kid. I think my first investments were, you know, Mount Isa Mines and then uh, the Telstra, the first Telstra IPO. And then when I, you know, started working in finance, because obviously you're working in finance, you, you feel like you've got a good handle on, on equities. I, I was using, you know, investing in single stocks. But over time, I sort of gravitated towards ETFs. And if I think about the way I, I look at markets and what's interesting for me about markets, I guess I'm actually sort of somewhat more drawn to the macro picture, thinking about asset classes, factors, countries, fixed income, equities, all sorts of different aspects rather than individual stocks. And I think that the advantages of ETFs, I mean, that's obviously one of the reasons I joined BetaShares. I think the advantages of ETFs are there for everyone, whether you're a startup, a new investor, or very much educated and know what you're doing. I just, for me, that's what I build my portfolio with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're preaching to the choir here, the converted. Uh, so. Curious to know, like, just I mean, maybe before I get to this question of like, how big do you think the ETF market can get? I'm hoping you can maybe set the the groundwork. So we we cover ETFs a lot, but we don't probably get the holistic picture on necessarily like how big it is now versus traditional products or vehicles or ways to get exposure to markets versus what it could become. Perhaps you can give us some context over, I guess, how the lay of the land is now, what it looks like, not only in Australia, maybe globally for ETFs and how that compares to other products like managed funds or what have you, if you have that on hand? Yeah. So, I mean, most people will be aware that that ETFs are growing and, and possibly don't have an appreciation for how large ETFs are versus other, other investment vehicles like unlisted managed funds. In Australia and also globally, the majority of, of money that sits in fund vehicles, including ETFs, is still in those unlisted managed funds. So in Australia, the ETF industry is around about $140 billion, which is about 15% of all managed money. So so about 85% still sits in unlisted managed funds. Um, Now, Australia was a bit of a laggard in terms of uptake of, of ETFs. ETFs only really started to take off in about 2010 in the US, where they're much more established. I think we've got around about you know, $6.5 billion, sorry, trillion dollars, trillion dollars in the States, obviously, in ETFs. And that represents about 30 or 29, 30% of all managed money. So clearly, you know, a greater degree of penetration because they're further along that, that adoption curve. Specifically within Australia, if we look at investment trends data, which, which talks to what investors are doing with their money, what their intentions are, we're close to 2 million Australians with an ETF investment. And the indications are that that will grow by 
perhaps another a quarter of a million investors, you know, this year alone. So, so you know, it's certainly growing. To talk about who's investing in ETFs, the majority of investors are still are still in Australia. If I'm talking in Australia, but advised or advisors, brokers, and institutions, high net wealth groups. Retail makes up around about thirty percent of all all investors in the ETF landscape, but it's clearly got applicability across the spectrum. There, the growth that we're seeing. I mean, that 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 is the growth has been very strong. But if we sort of say that. Currently, the US is at 29%, and that's growing as a share of all funds. If Australia was just to catch up to that 29%, we'd see the ETF market here approximately double in, in total size. And I think there's a number of levers to that. It's not just the more people you know, seeing ETFs as a, as a really valuable tool and seeing the advantages. But if we think about particular asset classes, like fixed income as an asset class was pretty much completely ignored within the ETF market five years ago, right? Whereas now it's become, you know, the, the second most or sometimes the most popular asset class in terms of flow. So people have gone from using unlisted active managers to passive low cost ETFs. So it's those sorts of changes in investor behavior and seeing the advantages that are driving this shift. Do you have any data or even just a general sense on the trading volume. So I think, and we'll get to this maybe in a few minutes, but like, I think people are just trying to get a sense of who owns what, if that makes sense. So like, not just necessarily like how big the ETF vehicle as a market size is overall, but also just what proportion are they accounting for trades or for the number of like the value of shares on the market, anything like that, if you can get us some sense there. Yeah. Yeah. So look, in terms of in Australia, the trading volumes are are certainly not as high as the US in terms of how much those ETFs account for the underlying trade of Australian shares, if if that's what you're sort of trying to get to. One of the reasons for that is that where ETFs became really useful early on is that if I'm an Australian investor, say, for example, in, you know, 2010, I was probably pretty keen to go out and choose my own stocks on the ASX. So I might have bought the big four banks, the miners, but I didn't really have an easy way of accessing international equities. So the leading asset class, you know, really over the long term has been international equities. So most of the, if you like, the, the trading volume off the back of ETFs is actually trading into equities in different markets around Australia. Within the ETF landscape itself, there are there are obviously different ETFs that trade with a different degree of, you know, sort of frequency. So, you know, take, for example, some of our more trading oriented ETFs, like so fuel, which is BetaShares Global Energy ETFs, that, that might be more of a trading vehicle or QFN, which is our Australian Financials ETF. You see people looking to put tactical plays on um, when they want to make a decision like that. So they tend to be a bit more heavily traded. Interestingly, actually, we also see periods where ETFs undergo a, a period of what looks like stagnation, where no one's necessarily interested in, in that particular exposure. And I can talk to all sorts of examples, but a really interesting one is is food, which is our BetaShares Global Agriculture ETF, which was launched in 2016. We didn't have much assets under management. People weren't really interested in that exposure. And then as inflation started to take off in 2021, well, people realized that food, this ETF, a basket of agricultural companies gave you a really good inflation hedge. It was basically performing in line with changes in inflation expectations. So, so just I think the use case and the applicability of an ETF and therefore the volume that's traded can really depend on the current market circumstances. That's really interesting. I 
had you know a bunch of guests on the show previously talk about ETFs in the market uh, in some different guises. And one stat that I heard, and I don't know, this could be just me, like this could just be an urban myth, right? One stat that I heard was that even though like, a heap of money is going through passively managed strategies in the United States, they account for only single digits of trading volume of the underlying, which for me is kind of like music to my ears because I think, well, maybe they don't have kind of the impact on trading because the price discovery thing is the thing that people kind of freak out about. And one of the questions I wanted to put to you, and I was chatting to you about this before, is like, we've got people like Michael Burry that come out from the, you know, the guy from the big short who come out and say there could be like some bubble here or it's slowly crept in and everyone's looking for an exit, but the door is the same size. You know, that's the analogy. And I guess the fear there is that so much money going into passive or even like thematic style based ETFs and strategies. And then like, who are they trading against? How is the volume faring? Does that create, I guess, market dislocation between price discovery and value? I don't know. Like, I guess I'm just hoping that you can rebut some of those points and then we'll just go from there. Of course. Yeah. So I guess that is actually a really powerful reason to consider ETFs is a point you made about the fact that when an ETF is well-established, and has a what we'd call a lot of natural liquidity. So, for example, the ways the, the counterparties or the people who I might buy an ETF on the ASX are likely to either be another investor, so who's looking to sell, or I might be looking to buy off a market maker. So, basically, a, a proprietary trading firm whose business it is to create market in, in ETFs. Now, where there is a lot of uptake of that ETF, where that ETF becomes popular what we see is you see a lot of that natural liquidity, buyers and sellers creating a market. And that's where you can see some real compression in the bid-ass spread. But it also means that the underlying basket of stocks within that ETF doesn't need to be traded because effectively that underlying basket is just being passed in an ETF wrapper from one investor to another. Now, that's very different to a listed fund where depending on how liquid that is or when it trades, can result in in a greater degree of the fund manager needing to sell the stocks to basically fulfill a redemption and and then buy stocks for an application. And it's that increased volume and that that uptake and acceptance, which is sort of self-fulfilling in terms of the advantage. Just to to give a simple example, certainly is the case that the more widely adopted and the more diversified an ETF, we tend to see better liquidity the buy-sell spread for our A200 ETF, which is our, our just low-cost broad market Australian equity ETF, that's trades at between three and four basis points between the bid-ask spread. If I was to buy an unlisted managed fund, an equity fund, those, you know, you see on some of the largest unlisted equity funds, those bid-ask spreads can be 20 basis points either side. So, you know, your round trip is 0.4%. And so that's clearly going to be an advantage there, clearly going to be an advantage. And we're sort of seeing that as um, as one of those reasons why people are, are are interested in this part of the market. How about if, say, uh, an ETF instead of being actively traded, is like between investors, is actually say like those dollar cost averaging, like constantly like getting more units, accumulating units, because we're seeing that with some of the biggest like diversified. Well, I don't say diversified in the sense of like diversified ETF. I mean it in the sense of like those core positions that people use for those exposures to markets. How about those where there, I assume more units are being created and there's more involvement from APs and that type of stuff? Yeah, yeah. So where you're having increased inflows into an ETF, then over time, 
what's occurring is people are buying on market on a net basis. And typically that means that on a net basis, they will be buying from those market makers. Now, what occurs there is that that market maker will have what they call inventory or they'll have units that ETF that they're selling to you. And when they run out, they will basically create an, or they will apply for more units, which is similar to how you as an individual investor might apply for an unlisted managed fund. But they're doing that at scale and at very low transaction costs when they do that. At that point, we as an ETF provider are receiving that application and that that come in the form of, of two ways. They might deliver the basket of stock, which means that you know we're not necessarily needing to go out and buy that basket, or they may have a cash application. They might provide the cash and we would go out and buy the individual shares. So that can re- result in, in, in trading activity. I mean, I guess the point I'd make on, on market impact there is that if you look at the Australian market or the US market, the vast majority of volume is going through you know, those very large, very diversified, very liquid ETFs where the underlying stocks are very liquid. So I guess if you, there are, I think I could, you know, there's potentially some niche examples in the US where, you know, there are literally thousands of ETFs where you might expect there's some market impact. But if you were to look at where the bulk of that volume flows through and the bulk of ETFs, the S&P 500 is incredibly liquid as a market, much more liquid than the Australian market. And so, you know, that, that market impact is, is negligible of anything. Just to talk a bit about, you know, your comments on, you raised about Michael Borey and he's obviously, you know, he's, he's famous for, um, for, for raising the potential for bubbles in, in asset prices and well known for his role in basically highlighting issues with, in the GFC with residential mortgages and subprime and it was played um, very well by um, by uh, Christian Bale in in The Big Short. So I mean, you know, great movie by the way. But I guess one thing I'd point to is is a lot of that criticism is 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 an argument around that passive has got bigger, and we've seen that stock prices have gone up in ten years from twenty ten to twenty twenty. And I just don't buy that. Um, the reason the point I, I would say is that. You can look at other markets where there is no passive investing. So if you look at private equity or if you look at venture capital over that period from 2010 to 2020, those prices went up in some cases a lot more than, than listed equities, as an example. And, and so you know, clearly passive didn't play a role there. And the reality is that the driver of, of that inflation in asset prices over that period clearly what the intervention of the Fed did in monetary policy. And the reason why that occurred is because the Fed thought there was an issue with stagnant economic growth and was trying to essentially encourage people to take on risk to you know, increase the wealth effect and therefore drive economic growth. So that, if you like, run up in, in all risk assets, and it certainly didn't just apply to assets covered by ETFs, was by design by a central bank nothing to do with the form of investing that, that relates to a lot of the way ETFs are structured. Some of the other comments that, that you know, that Barry make, you know, are, are around ETFs creating momentum, creating churn and at the, I guess, increasing volatility. As I, you know, in the US or in, let's take Australia, so, so passive is roughly 30% of all actively managed money. And if you, you can talk to other factors that, that drive much more volatility, I think, like if we look at the dot-com boom 
in the late 90s to 2000. I mean, that was driven by a huge increase in retail investors day trading on newly newly new new e-trade accounts. Or if we look at, for example, like you know, the Robinhood and GameStop phenomenon in the States, I mean, items like that drive a lot of volatility and momentum. And we also see increasingly started this year, we've seen that active managers have sort of actually driven up equity markets in perhaps the hopes of a soft landing if you look at the data of active manager flows. So there are a lot of elements in play that that drive momentum, that can drive volatility. And I don't believe fundamentally that that ETFs as a whole are really a culprit there. How about, and this might be something that I catch off guard with, so apologies, but for this one, how about in, say, like slightly less liquid markets? So like obviously we've got government bonds, super liquid, blue chips, super liquid. But what about, I guess, things like maybe like hybrid securities are a good example where it's kind of like a middle ground where it's like slightly less liquid but still liquid? Like is there any challenge or like anything that you guys would face in, say, when there's market distress? Yes. Yeah, no, that's an excellent example, really. So, I mean, fundamentally, when you're building an ETF, you're trying to make sure that if it is a passive ETF, because not all of our ETFs are passive, but if it's a passive rules-based ETF, that you have confidence that it's going to have a tradable portfolio of of securities through all market conditions, right? And um, we actually, we have two hybrid ETFs. The first of those is our BetaShares Active Australian Hybrids Fund. And so it's actively managed. But that's right. The active manager is, is Coolabar Capital. With that ETF, within the, the mandate, the securities that that ETF invests in are actually restricted to certain types of hybrids, hybrids that are, that are issued by Australian depository institutions or banks and insurance companies. And the reason for that is because those issuers have regulatory requirements governed by APRA, which mean that they tend to be uh, more robust as issuers. And therefore, it means that we see that those hybrids are more liquid. But there are also corporate hybrids issued by, say, companies like New Farm. And those hybrids, where you don't have those same sort of protections, you see that that's a less liquid part of capital markets or of the hybrid market. So within the mandate of, of HBRD, which is that actively managed fund, the firstly, those less liquid hybrids are excluded. But secondly, having the active manager even helps with some of the smaller bank and insurance issuers. Just to move one step further, we also have a passive, a passive hybrid exposure, which is which is BHYB, B-H-Y-B. And that ETF is restricted just to issuance by the big four banks. Because you know, as a passive vehicle, we want to make sure that that's really going to be liquid in all sorts of scenarios. And there's no active manager there to play a role. You know, there are all sorts of private assets markets where you wouldn't necessarily look for any form of, of passive investing, but it's all about thinking about that market, thinking about where the risks are, and particularly thinking about the risks in a stressed market scenario as to whether an ETF is in, in fact appropriate. I think I've chatted to Elon a few times and when we've spoken, ETFs have stood the test of time, right? Like now it's not a question of can they survive? It's like they will. And I think for most investors, it's just prudent. It's just important to be prudent around those times of market distress and understanding the liquidity of certain markets. Like uh, credit during the GFC was obviously a pretty stressful time, even for ETF providers. But um, this actually is a perfect segue into the next point, which is like another great investor, another famous investor has come out, like Peter Lynch, famous investor, active in equities or shares, super, super kind of like 
the beacon of like what you can do as an active investor. And basically there's a Bloomberg article and I've got it here. And the, the basic gist of it is like all in passive investing could be a mistake. So like just focusing on passive. I'm just curious to get your response to that because it's something that, you know, we face a lot as well as people that are trying to educate folks on building a portfolio and so on. They're just like, well, why don't I just go with this thing? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like there is something slightly compelling in, in the argument that you can use a professional who understands this complex system called the market or that they're a safe pair of hands. You don't want to have a sort of a robot driving your investment portfolio. It's a, it's a very important thing for your, your you know future well-being. I would point out sometimes when active managers make these arguments, they're sort of selective in the, the data they use. So, so, you know, Peter Lynch's fund was the Fidelity Magellan Fund, a US equity fund. And it's been around, I, I think it might be since the 70s or, you know, even earlier. That fund did very, very well early on in its life. But if you actually look at its performance over the last three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, it's actually underperformed the, the S&P 500. But by looking at, by talking about its performance since inception, because it had some very good years very early on, small he can talk about how that's delivered out performance. The reality is that funds now grow and it might be, it may be more difficult to find those alpha generating opportunities. So, you know, that selective use of data is, is one point I'd make that you, you sometimes see. But more broadly, you know, there are there is good studies done by groups like Spiva showing that on average, especially when you look at longer term horizons, on average, most active managers underperform. And that's pretty consistent across asset classes and across countries. The one point that I always sort of see is that often, you know, investors and managers can be narrative driven in terms of the story. When you see a period of whether it's a liquidity crisis, a market crash or some sort of some sort of issue in markets, that's when you tend to find out what you really are invested in. And we sort of see this time and time again, and that's when ETFs tend to stand out from the competition. We'll often see, for example, active managers perform very well in times which suit the style of fund. But then when um, things come unstuck, you know, in fact, that safe pair of hands argument falls away. And we saw that in COVID 2020, where, where, you know, a number of active managers saw problems there. Last year, if we look at growth managers, growth equity managers, we saw a number of growth equity managers who, for example, have performance fees embedded in in their, their management fee structure. And we saw a number of managers who had, over a period of time, generated excellent returns, like well above the MISCI World Index. But if you look at their portfolio, they were taking very concentrated bets in tech stocks and therefore earning very large performance fees. Now, I don't want to claim that, that they weren't acting in investors' best interest because obviously they were generating good returns and they, they saw that, that outperformance, even net of fee. But those single stock positions for some managers, and I'm thinking of one in particular, then saw um, you know extreme risk volatility over the last sort of 12 months. And if I compare the profile of, of various funds, I can often find an ETF that gives you the same profile, but a much lower fee point. So NDQ, which is our NASDAQ 100 ETF, has performed incredibly similar to a lot of those growth tech-oriented managers in the good times. But because it doesn't necessarily have the same degree of stock-specific risk and fee load, we often see that it can perform much more strongly in those in those tougher times. So I don't want to say that um, people should only consider passive. But if you are looking at an active manager, look at the fee load, look at their style of investing in particular, 
And if you can get an ETF that gives you that same style, that same you know exposure that you're looking for, then that ETF is giving you better diversification, lower fees. You should consider that as well as the active manager as a potential solution in your portfolio. I mean, for what it's worth, like the the way I think about it is like we touched on before. Like if you're going to invest in illiquid things, maybe the ETF structure isn't the right structure because it just can't be done. But for all things that probably it's like that old saying like what can be automated will be automated you know what what can be passive will be passive is probably the, the way to think about it and i guess that's the proof is in the pudding over a longer duration now for many of those things so like i mean a lot of it, you would know this cameron but a lot of retail investors in particular don't have access to tools like x-ray from morningstar or the ability to see through portfolios and get a proper style guide although i think that is becoming better now with more solutions for retail investors just to understand overlap to understand like exposure to certain markets beyond just like what are the top 10 stocks you know i'm curious because like i spend a lot of time i spend a lot of time obviously educating investors doing all these types of things that go beyond just pure investing i think that's the way of the future for anyone that builds a business in this environment is you have to offer something that is like content where you can help people get smarter over time not just feed them but you know, teach them as well. And I'm, I'm curious, like, does the rise of passive management and the ability to just kind of almost set and forget in some ex- to some extent, does that have an adverse impact on financial education? Or do you think it actually may even improve it? I'm just kind of like going completely off to the side here to where our conversation was going, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts around that. Yeah, and no, that, that's, I mean, that's a good sort of thing for us, you know, to, to consider really. I mean, you know, does passive kind of dumb people down? I mean, you could ask a, a different question. If I place my money with an active manager and I trust him to drive the car because it's a complex machine, I don't know how to drive. In some senses, am I doing? Am I taking my hands off the wheel there? Am I? Am I entrusting him and and therefore you know sort of absolving myself of any need to sort of get up the curve? And we do see that a lot, particularly in an asset class like fixed income, which a lot of people actually see as as sort of complex and, and somewhat scary. I guess another way to think about this is, you know, what, what do people do when they're investing in in stocks themselves? And sometimes people are quite structured, um, robust, and they consider like, I, I guess, an investing perspective, which which encapsulates a lot of the important things that you should look at when investing in single stock portfolios. But but often fear and greed can take over, and and sometimes you know people invest in a whole bunch of small cap specy stocks and. I'd say that's probably more gambling than investing. Some of the things that I, I think that passive investing, you know, brings to bear is that one of the key points in, in finance is pretty simple, but the only free lunch in finance is diversification. You know, and, and clearly that's one thing that, that passive investing is all about. The impact of costs and fees over time really do matter. And the importance of, of having time in the market rather than trying to sort of time the market taking a long-term view, thinking about compounding your wealth over time. These are all sort of really important sort of fundamental lessons that, that we, you know, we all need to remind ourselves and, and need to learn initially when we're thinking about investing. And I, I think, you know, sort of framing your investment journey in, in, in those regards is, is important. But, but also, I mean, just one thing I would I'd note is that just because you're using, let's just say you're using a, a passive fund in Australian equities, a passive fund in global equities and passive fixed income fund, I mean, they, they might all be passive funds, but one of the biggest drivers of returns and risk, of course, is your asset allocation. How much do you allocate to those three vehicles if that was your simple portfolio? 
And so there's still a requirement to, to understand what you're doing. Uh, you might seek a financial advisor to get, get a viewpoint on that. And we also see that, you know, ETFs initially were that sort of yeah, that core broad you know, exposure for markets. But, you know, increasingly, you've got ETFs that can provide a way to express a view, whether it be investing in a particular sector in a country in a thematic as a satellite to try and add out performance. And I talked to a lot of very sophisticated investors who have now sort of down tools in terms of picking individual stocks or active managers and will use ETFs to express views in the satellite there. So, so I, I certainly think that overall, you'd say that ETFs are a force for good and, and empowerment. Oh, yeah. And it's, I guess the education piece around that is still just as important as ever, right? And uh, I think it's great. Right? One of the things Peter shares do is you guys produce so much content. I think even amongst like international peers, like the amount of content that you guys produce is like probably like it's right up there. It's like one of the, like I can't think of many brands that do that. I guess that's kind of also reflective of where we are in the cycle of the ETF market being so early in it is obviously a key, like the, we spend a lot of time talking about ETFs generally speaking, rather than getting straight into the meat, right? Even now with a $100 billion plus industry here in Australia and trillions overseas. So we're still talking about like, how do you use one? How do you figure that out? But I think more and more we become, people are becoming sophisticated and moving beyond that. I'm glad you talked about thematic investing because this is part, like people know NDQ, which is the NASDAQ 100 ETF you got. Uh, as well as things that are, can be used, considered in their core portfolio, like A200, for example, is super popular. But thematic investing is something that BDShares is particularly well known for. I can think of many different examples, right? And you mentioned food before is kind of that targeted exposure. And I've got a few questions around this, but I guess one of the questions, and this is more of a, like a hard-hitting one, Cameron, which is like some ETFs and a lot of the literature says that some of these thematic ETFs do not perform well straight out of the gates so or like over three or five years. In particular, like I'm going to single out one, which is the Crip ETF, which is the ETF I'm getting a lot of questions about lately, which is that cryptocurrency innovators one. Huge ETF straight out of the gates, lots of fanfare, like people loved it. Uh, and then it's gone on to perform really poorly since it's launched. And I guess just like I'm just after, like I know you, <laughs> you're part of Peter's share, so I'm going to go for like candid responses here. But like, what, do you, what, like, how does that happen? Like, where does that go wrong? Like, well, let's just go from there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I guess maybe I'll just talk about how when we're developing a new product, how we how we think about thematic ETFs. And look, you know, we have lots of what we call sort of product segments to our business. And, and one of those areas would be thematic ETFs. And when we're thinking about a thematic exposure, you're really looking at creating an investment which is going to leverage structural growth. And we sort of look for three key attributes um, in terms of deciding that we are going to go ahead with with launching a, a thematic ETF. And I mean, th those three things is, the, the first question is, is do we think that this theme is a, is a fad or do we think that this has multi-decade growth where it's going to play out? And um, the second thing is, do we think that the companies that are involved in this space, are, there, are they either profitable now or do they have a path to profitability? And then the third question is, is there enough investable companies you know, that are liquid enough um, so we can create that sort of diversified exposure to that theme? And, specifically to talk about crypt i mean so this is an exposure to companies that effectively sort of provide a lot of the infrastructure in, in the you know the digital economy so these yeah picks and shovels these are these are equities and it was a space we were interested in a long time but uh, we, when we we launched that etf in 2021 late 2021 and 
And that was really the first point as to which we could satisfy that the last requirement of having enough investable companies because the space really was too nascent before that. The performance of that fund like, is, has been certainly very volatile. Like The month of January was up 50%, but that's off a low base. I mean, it, down roughly sort of 75% since inception. Like Interestingly, we, we haven't actually seen net outflows out of that fund. And yeah, and I, I hope I hope that's due to our efforts in terms of educating investors as to what they're investing in and how to think about thematics. Firstly, we sort of say that with that fund, given that this digital sort of digital economy is sort of in its infancy, it's going to have a high degree of correlation to, to, to Bitcoin, Ether and, and coins. And that's going to come with a high degree of volatility. You should be thinking about how much of this you allocate to your portfolio. And we did see in terms of trading activity, the trade sizes in isolation were quite small. So we think that people, you know, I'd hope that most people allocated relatively small parts of their portfolio to that because it's such a vol- it was such a volatile exposure. I guess from our thinking, we thought that this was a sensible exposure to, to launch at the time. And we might well have seen with greater adoption that we did a 3x return in the first sort of year and a half. You know, crypto sort of famously goes through these crypto winters. We will see what happens. But I wouldn't say that that 50% return we saw in January is an anomaly. And you may see even greater returns in, in the future off, off the back of this. It's trying to provide that pure play exposure. And then if an investor wants to use this and if they have confidence in the, the earnings potential of that group of companies, then, then that's sort of that access vehicle for them. Just more broadly on the comment on, on thematics and I guess one thing I'd, I'd sort of make in terms of thinking about thematic exposures and how to use them, if we look at the global equity market last year and, and if you look at sector breakdown, so different sectors, whether it's, you know, you know media, banks, financials, uh, tech and energy, energy was the one sector last year that had positive returns. And I think the returns on energy were roughly 50, 60%. Everything else was negative. So if you didn't hold energy in your portfolio, you were probably going to underperform. Now, there were sort of, you know, so energy is oil and gas. There were some isolated exceptions to that. So uranium companies did quite well last year. Energy transition miners, energy transition material miners did quite well. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, we have thematics that provide exposure to those themes. But broadly, most thematics last year, generally speaking, didn't hold energy stocks. And so subsequently, we saw a degree of underperformance. And a number of them had relatively high weights to tech and we saw a sell-off in tech. I guess the point I'd make is that investing in a, um, in a theme, in our view, and this is just a general comment, you should be thinking about the long-term performance and in particular, the long-term ability for those companies to generate earnings growth. Markets and valuations can move around a lot in volatile times, but taking a long-term view, we think that earnings growth rather than changes in valuations is what really counts. The, the way we sort of see these thematic ETFs is that if I think about building a portfolio, our philosophy, and this is just our philosophy, it may not apply to you as an individual, is that you're best off building your core portfolio out of, out of low cost, broad diversified ETFs and building blocks that you, you can sort of sleep at night in, in through the market cycle. And thematic ETFs can really add value as a, as a satellite, as something that can potentially drive out performance. But as a, as a you know a pure, you know what we'd call a, a satellite that gives you very good exposure to a theme, it might be cybersecurity. Generally speaking, you've got a more concentrated basket than a diversified 
core Australian equities ETF. You might have 30 to 100 stocks in that thematic basket. So, so you're going to have two things. You're going to have higher volatility than your core exposures, but you're also going to have a high, lower degree of correlation than other core building blocks. Um, so that thematic exposure will have theme-specific risk, which means it, it moves. It, its volatility is very different to your core exposures. And so, you know, when we talk about building portfolios using using thematic ETS, we often talk about sizing that satellite appropriately so that you don't increase the overall expected volatility of the portfolio, but you can add out performance potential. Because if you put that thematic in there at 50% weight of your portfolio, you would expect your overall volatility to go up. But when it's a smaller allocation, the fact that it has a lower correlation or it it moves very differently can actually sort of assist in the, in that volatility. So that's sort of our our, our mantra and how how we think about that. That's our approach. But obviously, that's a I make that point as a general comment rather than specific advice. Yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely. And uh, anyone listening to this knows that uh, we're only speaking in general terms here. You should always speak to your financial advisor to help you build a portfolio. So I've got a couple more questions, and one of them is kind of. The, the question that often I get that leads on from, well, is it a core position or can I use this here or here? And the, the waters get blurry depending on like people's objectives and all that. So again, like I encourage people to think carefully about their own portfolios and speak to an advisor and all that. How do you think about what should be like just maybe even some general goalposts on maybe what is considered more thematic and more and less kind of in the core? Because I get a lot of questions, and one of the questions I've been getting recently is like, whenever you guys at Beta Shares like launch your fund, I get a lot of questions around these funds. So one of them is the the Royal ETF, which just shows you your marketing's working, right? So it's a, I think the ticker symbols R Y L. And one of the questions I got recently was basically like, how could you use this in a portfolio? Yeah, so look, it very much does depend on what what the exposure is, and I think so. So Royal is an exposure to global royalties companies. There are, Effectively, companies that have financial arrangements where they essentially, in a general sense, earn revenue or a stream of revenue connected to whether it be an iron ore mine or um, music royalties or um, royalties from a pharmaceutical drug. So it's kind of a way of providing finance to, to a company who's trying to fund one of those activities and then getting a cash flow stream off back of that. It's a fund that has very interesting characteristics. I, I generally think of that as somewhat of a mixture between what I call a sector fund, which tends to move in line with the economic cycle, and a thematic fund. Now, sector funds are often much more responsive to the economic cycle, and a sector fund might include fuel, which is our global energy stocks, very much tied to the, to the energy cycle. It might include food. It might include our gold miners ETF. Whereas those thematic funds tend to be anchored into that long-term trend and a little bit less sensitive to, to um, economic activity in one time. Now, now Royal is really interesting because it has um, exposure to a group of companies who can see upside in their earnings when inflation starts to, to run hot. And so in that regard, it does have some exposure, more exposure to the economic cycle. But we're also seeing that mining companies are using more and more of these royalty structures to fund their mining activities. So it's got a bit of a you know footing both camps in terms of sector or thematic. You know, my view is that if I look at, at Royal and its correlation to, to equities, 
Um, so so say take yeah, A200, so Australian equities. Correlation of Australian equities over a three-year period to global equities would sit at about 0.75. So there, you know, there's a degree of benefit from holding um, both together, but they, they move somewhat together. Royal has a, a correlation of 0.5, so, so a lot lower. And so that I think of that as a, you know, you could add that in as a diversification tool. It also has an element of inflation hedging there, so it could perform a role in the core. And that's partly just due to the makeup of that particular fund. Typically speaking, if I'm thinking about a thematic fund, which is perhaps you know more purely a thematic fund like cybersecurity, hack, I, I certainly see that as a satellite exposure because of the way it is connected to, to that theme rather than the economic cycle. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And the sector, that's probably an interesting kind of like distinction there too around the sector versus thematic. Okay, so I've got two questions left. One of them, I know this is the kind of one that's really interesting for a lot of folks. It's just like some sectors or some themes or just even markets in general that you think people should have on their watch list in the year ahead. So people are thinking, well, I'm interested in learning more about a thematic or a sector or something like that. Like you could identify, say, three of them not just for 2023, but as you said, over the long term, like beyond, what would be three examples? Yeah, no, I mean, great question. So I'll just talk sort of within some thematic ETFs and, and ones that I think are, are sort of interesting. One one is XMET, which is our BetaShares Energy Transition Metals ETF. So this this holds a basket of, of miners and producers of, of eight key energy transition metals. So I think copper, lithium, cobalt, nickel, uh, manganese, silver, rare earth. So the, the, the premise behind this ETF is those particular metals and materials all have what we call a structural tailwind, where we see from the energy transition into renewables, the amount of build out of, of power grid infrastructure required and the transition to electric vehicles, we can see that um, there is massive demand on the raw materials required for that transition. And uh, like the constraints that exist in the supply for some of those materials mean that there's likely to be a fair degree of price support for producers of those materials. So they're well-placed. And if we think about where we're at in the cycle, you know, we may potentially see a US recession. Well, these producers are leveraged to something else. And there is a very strong degree of government support, which is now going into these industries the energy transition is becoming somewhat of a, you know, geopolitical area of tension between China and the US. And so securing supply of these materials has become strategic. And the US and Australia have both started releasing what are known as critical mineral strategies, where they've in fact provided cheap funding to producers of these materials. So a number of companies within this ETF have received cheap funding to develop other production or refining capabilities. And there's a really strong tailwind there. Last year, in the middle of last year, the US government released the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a curious name because it was really incentives to encourage consumers to buy um, US electric vehicles and to incentivize the production of renewable energy technology in the States. And those incentives were structured around the raw materials and where they came from. And when we look at, at XMED as, a, as, a, as an exposure, really set to benefit from these incentive structures put in place by government and that funding tailwind, along with just that natural increase in demand for things like electric vehicles. So I think that's a really interesting place. And 
that structural growth story will play out o- over you know 20 to 30 years. Another really interesting fund that 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 I think has perhaps slipped under the radar after a couple of years of underperformance is is Asia. Sika code it's our, our beta shares Asia Technology Tigers ETF. Now I'm, I'm sure that you know your listeners will be well aware that. China's gone through a tough period in terms of their capital markets. There was government crackdowns on things like gaming, on, on uh, you know some of the, the concerns around data, around Chinese technology companies. And we also saw very stringent lockdowns in China, especially throughout the whole of last year. Now, a number of things have turned in that, in that world. So we've seen the COVID reopening. We've seen that government support um, policies turn much more supportive. There were threats that Chinese shares listed in in um, Hong Kong and, and the US, what are known as ADR shares. There's a there was a reprieve by US regulators, you know, after there were threats to to delist some of those stocks. So a lot of these sort of you know headwinds have turned into tailwinds. Now Asia as an ETF, Better Shares Asia Technology Tigers is exposure to Asian technology leaders, you know, fifty companies from emerging market Asia. So. Roughly 50% China, but it's also Taiwan, India, South Korea, and the like. But that, that, that is the exposure. What I, what I find interesting is obviously these stocks are relatively beaten down from where they were two years ago. They have rallied somewhat from their lows in October. There's potential upside, but the other element here really is about portfolio diversification. The Chinese economy is at a completely different part of the cycle versus any other Western economies. But in Australia, US, Europe, we all got rising inflation problems, we've got tightening monetary policy, and we've had that post-COVID rebound well in the revision era, whereas in, in, in China in particular, very supportive government policy now, supportive monetary policy, low inflation, growth outlooks are improving. It's a completely different part of the cycle. So whether or not you believe there's, there's greater upside in, in terms of the companies, it's always advantageous to look for areas and look for exposures which give you something which will potentially act as a counterweight or is in a different part of the market cycle. So I think Asia for that reason, for the fact that it's very lowly correlated, is very interesting. To talk about, you know, another um, ETF and look, I feel like I mentioned this ETF, you know, I've mentioned this every time anyone's asked about thematic ETFs over the last three years, which is HACK, which is our BetaShares Global Cybersecurity ETF. I mean, every development that we've seen seems to increase the threat of, of hackers stealing data and the increasing amount of time that corporate board seats and governments spend thinking about cybersecurity as a threat is leading to a very strong tailwind for corporate spending and government spending on cybersecurity solutions. Um, and obviously, there's been a number of high-profile cyber hacks last year here in Australia, which we don't need to talk about. But you know, if, if, even if you look at you know, the last couple of months, we've seen chat GPT launched. Which is um, a generative ATI, sorry, a generative artificial intelligence technology. Now, Akamai, the, the chief technology officer there, was was commenting on this very early on about how this generative AT, artificial intelligence technology allows a hacker to potentially deploy a phishing attack at scale with far more effectiveness. Like if we, you know, you think about that sort of phishing email you used to get from a Nigerian prince. Bad, badly spelled, spelling mistakes. And if you actually wrote back, you'd get something you know, back which probably didn't make sense anyway. Whereas utilizing that technology, a hacker can actually create very conversational interactions that look realistic, look like you're dealing with a human and attack a very large surface area. So we've seen that the chief 
information officers in corporates are now looking to increase their spend and need to counter this threat. And those cybersecurity you know, service providers and product providers are developing new tools to essentially help, help these corporates defend against those threats. So I think in terms of if you look at that sort of structural dynamic in that industry, so, um, you know, hacks outperformance over since inception has been pretty significant over the long run. And I, I still believe that that's an area with really good companies with a really good growth trajectory over the long run. Yeah. So just in summary, we've got XMET, XMET, Asia and Hack, three fascinating, three fascinating uh, ETFs and I guess industries at large. That cybersecurity thing strikes close to home. Like obviously you having an early interest in engineering, I'm sure you're across it, but also for me, this is a passion point of mine. Like it's there's so many applications, good and bad, I guess some of these innovations that we have. But I thought maybe we'll end the conversation with one question, which is more, I think it's more philosophical and it's more personal because it kind of depends on our experience to date with investing or finance. But it's just, I guess, what's one thing that you believe about investing or finance or whatever that you think people, like few people would agree with you on? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, good question. Uh, yeah, I mean, talk about little things. I think one thing, and and I, I'm not sure like, how confident I am of this position, but one thing that sort of, you know, just sort of runs around the back of my head is that I think a lot of people or the market expects that whether or not we have a US recession or a soft landing on the other side of either of those two things, there's perhaps an expectation that, that you know, Fed policy and, and central bank policy will lower rates and that inflation will, will get back under control. We sort of describe the period between 2010 and 2020 as this deflationary period where things like technology, demographics and debt meant that we, we saw very, very much deflationary pressures. And look, there has been some comments about we've moved into a new normal post-COVID and deglobalization of supply chains means we move production of widgets from low-cost areas like you know, East Asia to, say, high-cost areas like like the US and creating potentially an inflation uplift. The one area that I sort of find interesting, and we'll see how this plays out, and I certainly am thinking about this as a long-term dynamic, not a short-term movement, but is what does the energy transition mean for you know inflationary pressures overall? And, and I sort of say that because you, you look at what needs to be spent, um, and it's it's not just in, in terms of electric vehicles and, and windmills, just the amount that needs to be spent in terms of energy efficiency of, of buildings, of industry, is enormous. And maybe, you know, ideally you'd like to think that we meet Paris goals, but even if, if we fall short, to me the expenditure required there um, is enormous, just looking at stats, and a significant portion of GDP. And I can't help but think that that does mean that we're going to have a slightly more elevated amount of inflation in the longer term over the next 20 to 30 years than um, perhaps other people um, believe. I guess we won't find out until we get there. But, but that's one thing that I sort of think about and sort of ponder on what that means in the longer term. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think a lot of us, at least people maybe under, say, 40, 45 even, maybe think, oh, you know, the structural trend is down and down towards zero, right? That's normal. But maybe that's not normal over time. Maybe Maybe there's something else that creeps in, which is has vast implications for investing. And you made a few comments around that earlier on. Cameron, I think for your first knock on the Australian Investors Podcast, brought to us by the Australian Shareholders Association, just I'm just thrilled to have those guys support in running the show. 
yeah, I just want to say thanks. I, did, I think you did really well and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Alan. I enjoyed the conversation. They're really good questions. Appreciate it. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.